Welcome to the Keto for Endurance Athletes podcast, where we show you how to push through the nutrition and training barriers that are holding you back in order to finally get the healthy body and race results you've always wanted. Take the guesswork out of your training and gain the fitness and confidence you need to succeed. Give one of our free training plans a try at www.ketoendurance.co. Peak on race day. Hello, everybody. Thank you again for joining us on the Keto for Endurance Athletes podcast. I have Peter Deppie here again. Peter and I are good friends, and we've talked on the podcast multiple times. And we're here again to help the endurance athletes out there be able to perform better, do better, learn more. I know there's a huge um, crest. I did a survey in our Keto for Endurance Athletes Facebook group, and people want most is tips on how to become more fat adapted and improve their performance. So welcome, Peter. Hey, Steph. Good to be back. Yeah, cool. Peter and I, before we started recording, we're talking how both of us are a little bigger than we want to be, but for probably, I don't think for the same reasons. Yeah, mine is just not not enough volume of exercise. I was bodybuilding. My friend and I are training for a bodybuilding competition before the pandemic hit, and then they closed my gym. So I was like, I'm going back to endurance stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, how's life in Arizona? It's good. I've been going to the lake and paddleboarding and swimming, and uh, it's actually really lovely here. Triathletes aren't very good at social distancing, and they're not really enforcing it either here in Arizona. Yeah, yeah. but you know, really, you really don't need to because, you know, with the sunlight and the hot weather, it's just, it's you know, somebody really has to have it and sneeze in your face to get it. Right. Well, and we're out in the water and... Did you watch the video um, with Ron Rosedale and Ivor Cummings talking about the cytokine storm? No, I didn't, but I'm pretty familiar with all that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I've shared it a lot, but some people I shared it with were not actually very happy with me. They told me to stop sharing that garbage. But, you know, if you have low fasting insulin and low blood sugar, you're probably going to have pretty good outcomes from the virus if you get it. Yep. Yep. And if you're out in the sun and you get your vitamin D up where it should be, which you know, since we started talking way back in 2013 is a key, key driver. Yeah. So, My vitamin D is typically very, very like ridiculously high. I was told to stop eating sardines to get my vitamin D to come down a little bit. Did you yeah, know if we, you have excessive high vitamin D, it will make your joints stiff, which was what was happening to me. Yeah, no, no, you don't want to have it too high, but you you want to have it in that sweet spot. I I think between fifty and ninety is a good place to have it. You get above that, you start to see some some other issues. Yeah, mine was like I don't even remember. I just know the doctor is like, "Wow, never seen vitamin D that high ever." Mm, mm. I mean, I went in because I was stiff. I was like, I just am so stiff all the time. And she goes, "Well, let's do some blood work and see what's going on." She goes, "Well." Your vitamin D is excessive. So uh, it was probably well over a hundred. 
Yeah, I think it was. Pro- I, yeah, she did some research and I went back for a follow up appointment. She goes, well, we just need to look into your diet and find out what's going on to try to lower it. And I was eating a lot of sardines at the time. But um, because I actually like sardines and anchovies a lot, but um, so for for folks out there who and I live in Arizona and I don't wear sunscreen and I ride my bike quite a bit in the sun and the paddle board and yeah. So tell us. I know you've been sharing a lot of stuff on the virus, or uh, you know, talk about what you've been noticing any trends lately with uh, keto adaptation. I know you've been talking a little bit about that too. Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of people, you know, like in the last week we saw Michael John McKnight run 100 miles on zero calories, which is something I've been positing for years. It's possible to do. It wouldn't be something you want to do on race day. And then Jack Bitter set a world record for 100 miles on a treadmill at 12 12 hours and change. Talk about patience. Hello. I can't even do a treadmill for patience is 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 i mean that is a mental test bar none yes yes but go on sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you yeah so you know we've had a couple things come out with that and it's kind of interesting because i posted a comment that there's a certain very famous coach in the ultra endurance sphere who's actively bashed fat adaptation you know he, he tries to refer to it mostly as keto because you know, we'll be. The, I'll be the first to say you can't get your performance on keto, but he's been strangely quiet, especially since these things have happened. Right, and I would like to to pipe in when I say keto for endurance athletes, I'm talking about keto adaptation or fat adaptation. So I'm not ever saying, and I have never said no carbs ever, which a lot of people get confused about. Well, and and the thing is, is what's important for people to understand is if you want to have really good fat adaptation, actually your carb tolerance is a real good sign of how well you actually can metabolize fat. Right. Yeah. Because if Like you my big, husband is going to metabolize a lot of carbs. It's right. Not, but he doesn't need to be sucking on a gel every 20 minutes either. No, he doesn't. No. My husband, for those people who don't know him, he's uh, six foot seven and weighs 165 pounds. So if you can imagine, that's pretty darn skinny. And he rides his bike quite a bit, but I ride my bike the same amount of time he does. But I just don't have the same genes. My carb tolerance genetically, not that high. Right, right. And so Jim has a lot better carb tolerance, plus he's got the exercise volume to to burn it. So it's it's, you know, it's a different construct. But for most people, getting your you know, starting out with a with what we call a hard reset, which uses some of the principles from keto, I think for for most endurance athletes, keto is really for sedentary people, or at least the way keto is practiced right now, because keto should be re- really is about measuring the ketones in your blood. And and for most sedentary people, you have to induce it with a with a diet that's high in fat. Right. And, and I also like to say, so Peter, like you actually work with a lot of probably higher level athletes than some of the people I work with. No, so, no. I work with everybody as Stephanie. You okay. know that. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of people who, who come to me and they have a lot of insulin resistance. So yep. if you have high fasting insulin levels and high fasting blood sugar, 
and you cannot get to where you could even show like any millimolars on a blood ketone meter, you need to seriously restrict the carbs a lot until, until you get that fasting insulin down, that blood sugar down, and you can do some fasted workouts, like go a couple hours with no, nothing but electrolytes, you know, in here in the winter, I wouldn't even use electrolytes in the summer. I need them, but if you can go a couple hours fasted, then you can start experimenting with adding carbs. But if you're, if you don't have those criteria, you shouldn't start experimenting with adding carbs. Right. You know, when you're starting from square one, it's it's always important. You're adding stress by making a dietary shift if you're a sugar burner. And so you, you really got to back off on the exercise too. I mean, right. That's, that's, and I recommend Maffetone heart rate with the lower end. You can change, you know, adjust Maffetone to higher yeah, you could, once you get adapted. Right. Once you get adapted, that changes. And that's right. one of the things a lot of people don't know. And you, you've seen that you've seen that consistently too, right? When people once right. they get adapted. But, and I think that like, I mean, I know even Dr. Maffetone says it in his stuff. Once you, you become where you're a healthy person, you can train a, a moderate to high training volume. You don't get sick and you don't have allergies and you bounce back, you can start bumping that heart rate up higher and higher. Like even, and I'm sure you would agree with me, once you get well adapted, you could add in some carbs and you can peg your heart rate pretty high. high. I've done some century bike rides where I got PRs. I wasn't taking any carbs and I was, you know, my heart rate was like in the one, you know, 40, 150 range, my math. But that was after, you know, I pretty well, you know, adapted had a lot of focus adaptation yeah yeah and and so where were we Steph kind of kind of guide well we were talking about the difference between someone who has a lot of insulin resistance yeah so the first thing I would look at is you know like you say when you have high insulin because insulin is such a multifaceted hormone it does a lot of things it doesn't just drive blood glucose down it's very anabolic in the right setting. It's, it's, it's really about getting that uh, insulin down to where it's where it should be, where, where you're low insulin and highly insulin sensitive. Because when you get there, it becomes an anabolic hormone. Right. Right. It's a toggle between breakdown and rebuild. And that's what you want. Yeah. Well, it's become, you know, when you have high insulin, it's trying to manage excess energy so it's trying to burn off the glucose so it's shunting glucose in the cells to be burned it's shunting glucose to the liver to get converted to fat and stored it's it's shunting fat into storage and and when it toggles when you get your insulin down it toggles into being a much more anabolic hormone and it's one of the most anabolic hormones after like testosterone and hgh but you know because of the the environment that we that we're in now, where we're constantly eating way too many carbs, chronically, it doesn't have that same anabolic effect. Now, if you're a young male athlete, you haven't had decades of carb exposure, you can get away with a lot of carbs, and that's why a lot of the science being based on young competitive athletes, the carbs work. But um, right, isn't that frustrating? I think personally, as an older female, it irritates me that 
there are some coaches, and I don't know if you're referring to the same coach that I'm thinking about, who now has a pot belly, who pushes carbs, who's saying like, oh, well, we have to have the carbs, have to have the carbs. But now he has obviously some insulin resistance because of of his body composition. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. You can tell me after. But anyway, it's just, it's it's kind of funny that, you know, both you and I, t- you know, we both coach our athletes once we get them adapted and find their tolerance level to use carbs when they need them. We're not afraid of the carbs, but it's kind of funny how these coaches who are pushing the carbs just are just completely ignore the long-term consequences of too much concentrated carbohydrate consumption, the unintended consequences, primarily with insulin. And, and to a point, you also have this interaction of insulin with other hormones, you know, it's very complex and, you you know, it's this delicate dance of insulin, ghrelin and leptin. Right. And, you know, if you, like I say. Right. um, And estrogen and estradiol and progesterone and, and all those things. I mean, it's, we're complicated. Absolutely. I'm not trying to. But no, I know what you're you're saying, but go on. But I mean, just, just front line, front line, you've got this when you, when you, when you diet, because a lot of people focus on the diet, you've got this delicate balance of of hormones between insulin, leptin, and ghrelin. And then, of course, if your insulin's high, your cortisol's high, then all of a sudden your your estradiol, your DHEA, your progesterone, your estrogen all get affected, and it's it's just a, it's messy, right? Because your body's trying to compensate for it. So we want to kind of try to get back to that evolutionary model where we're most of the time eating a lot less concentrated carbohydrates and upping the protein. And for athletes, I think when you're athletic, whether you're in your 20s and 30s or your 50s and 60s or even 70s, it's really about not like keto macros, but you know, a macro where you're cycling the protein, the fat, and the carbs based on your training loads and your activity levels and doing fasting as part of that to mimic, you know, that evolutionary milieu that we, we, we evolved in so that we can maintain that hormonal health. So it's, it's really actually a lot more protein. It's not low protein. I don't, I, I like to see people have higher rates of protein, pretty good fat. And then the carbs just kind of go up and down based on load. So let's talk about protein because one time we were talking a few years ago and I was saying, wow, I need a lot more protein than I thought. And you were saying, well, it's just moderate protein. But my idea of a lot of protein was 0.6 gram or actually 0.8 grams to 1.3 grams per pound of lean mass. And then whatever the calculation that you gave was almost exactly the same, but my definition of a protein as higher was your definition of protein as lower. So I think that it, or I mean, yeah, whatever. It, it's it, the it same amount. Being, it worked the same protein. Same, right. It was the same protein. But what I was saying is I, for me to eat that much protein, I had to eat a lot more protein than I was eating. And yep. for a lot of bodybuilders or people like that, it's actually a lot less protein than they're, they were trying to force themselves to eat. Right. And, and, and with bodybuilding, it's, it's, see, the importance of protein, when people say protein, I, I just kind of roll my eyes because I'm starting to ask questions. What kind of protein? Because there's a big 
difference between a meal of steak and eggs and a, a shake of branched chain amino acids. Right. But yes. Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah, that calls what that for people who think that a whey protein shake is the same quality of protein as a ribeye steak, you would be mistaken. Right, right. So that you know, and so people say protein, it's like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we're talking, you know, BCAA shake, are we talking about boneless, skinless chicken breast, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or are we talking about real meal? So for the sake of what we do, we both kind of are on the on board with most of that protein is going to come from real food protein sources. Right. And one of the key things that the audience needs to understand, and this is really understanding how to make this doable, is that real food protein sources, when we eat them the way they come as a food protein source, whether it's a roast chicken or ribeye steak or, or whole eggs, et cetera, they generally come with a significant amount of their calories being fat calories. Like a ribeye steak can be anywhere from 50 to 70% of the calories are fat, depending on the marbling, right? Right. Whole eggs are 30, 35%, depending on the yolk, right? So, and then if you're eating a chicken, you're going to get, you know, 30%, 35% of the calories are from the fat if you're eating the skin or the thigh, and more if you're eating the thighs or the legs. So, the point I want to make here is protein, it's really about the protein assimilation rather than shotgunning a lot of protein. So, if you're doing it like a protein shake without a lot of fat, you're not going to assimilate the protein the same way. Your body's going to do it because it demands protein. But unfortunately, when you, you could be taking in high protein and yet getting less protein being shunted into muscle mass than taking a moderate protein, higher fat thing in, because a lot of that protein is going to be converted to glucose. And then the amine group is going to get sent to your kidneys for excretion. And that's what happens with a lot of bodybuilders. They're using a lot of protein. They're overusing it. They're not assimilating it. They're, they're getting a glucose drive, a gluconeogenesis drive to push their anaerobic workouts, right? But they are making shake companies more money. They're Peter. making shake Don't companies. Don't forget that important uh, aspect. I know. And, and, and that <laughs> it's, it's a good way to make money, but it's like it's putting a tremendous load on the body. So I'm not sure that that's ideally healthy. And also when you're, if you're in a, bodybuilding sort of competition type thing and you're pushing it with all that sugar your body's going to want to do the more uh, uh, glycolytic pathways the anaerobic pathways you're going to put on a lot of the type 2b anaerobic fast twitch muscle which is like the white meat so it's not it's not as mitochondrial dense and that's really important. So in terms of longevity, that's why a lot of bodybuilders who bulk up real fast, they have trouble maintaining the, a healthy muscle mass when they don't work out because it's not really optimally healthy muscle tissue because of it doesn't have the mitochondrial density. And you have a lot of oxidative stress, right? Because you're doing it aerobically. Right. And that's where fat adaptation and endurance or cardiovascular exercise is key. And we don't we don't have a body of science around that. We have a body of science around cardio. And you see all these people out there saying, oh, we can do hit hit type exercises and we don't have to do cardio. And then you even uh, have people- That makes me freaking insane. But go on, you talk. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. 
and neither one of us are saying you don't need to do hit workouts or tempo no, workouts. But you, you have to have an aerobic base first. In fact, right, but, that should be the first step from going to nothing to something. You absolutely. need to build an aerobic base and then you add the intensity. Don't add the intensity. A, but the key right. here is it's got to be an aerobic base on a fat-based physiology. Right. Yes, we're okay. in 100% agreement, Peter. No, no, we're, we've yeah. been on board with that forever. And this is key for people to know because there's no body of science on that because cardio has been built on high carb base. And even, even when you look at, when Phil, Phil was working with like Stu Middleman and Mark Allen and Mike Pig, I've got the original first editions, right? And because these were young, fit, highly athletic males, he didn't have to do the same really sharp carbohydrate reduction, right? Right, And yeah. so to get the performance. So back then in his books, his idea of his two-week test was to go from like whole grains to from processed grains to whole grains rather than, you know, what he advocates now, which is that sharp reduction. Okay. This is, this is what we've been doing with OFM is really sharpening down that you know, you really scale it down to get that really optimal shift. And then you start with the aerobic. Right. So like, let's say, let's use the example. There's a, a middle-aged, like 45-year-old accountant who has been, kids are finally older and he decides he's going to start, he wants to run a marathon. And he's been eating the high-carb diet and everything, but he's from going from nothing to training for a marathon that we would both agree you have to really bring your carbohydrates down to probably less than 20, you know, protein between 0.6, 1.3 grams per pound of lean mass, and then fat to satiety, and then build your mafetone pace until you're fasting insulin. You know, you could go, I, I talked to Jonathan Edwards about it, and he said, you know, basically you you get to the point where you feel almost high, you're so you feel good running without any carbohydrates. That's when you know it's time. You add in intervals because you feel so good running. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you need to like like somebody who's making a switch, especially if they're coming from a, a relatively high carb diet, which most people are. Right. Um, they need to take a couple of days off, three or four days off from exercise. Start the diet yeah. first, and then add the exercise. They need to make sure they got their vitamin D up. They need to make sure as soon as, and you know this, as soon as they start to encounter diuresis when they're making that that dietary switch, right? As soon as they start losing fluid, they have to start bringing the electrolytes and fluid right. in, right? Otherwise, they're going to get the keto flu. They got to right. they understand all that, and then they start exercising on this fat based physiology. And and this is, you know, I'm going to sort of sound like a broken record, but this is the key thing. Get that fast-paced physiology, then build the aerobic base because what happens is there's a lot of really interesting physiology that's very different between a carb-based endurance athlete and a fat-based one. One of them is what I call, what's called arterial distensibility. It's the distensibility of your blood vessels, whether your arteries, your veins, your capillaries, your microcapillaries, because they don't have that inflammation they can now grow and they can handle more blood volume. And that's one of the reasons why you have to add the electrolytes and water is because you actually can move more fluid 
And if you don't do that, your blood pressure drops, you feel sluggish and lethargic. And you can pass out too. Right, right. Or, and if somebody is on blood pressure medication, they really need a monitor that because it can become. Oh yeah, they they can go through the floor. I'm just adding those caveats just to, you know, if someone's listening to this. And this is important, but but the beauty of that is you've taken away the inflammation that you get and the oxidative stress that the carbs give you. And, you know, all of a sudden you're able to move more blood and oxygen. You're able to stimulate your muscle cells with more blood and oxygen, which means you're going to have greater mitochondria biogenesis. Those mitochondria are going to be producing energy via beta oxidation instead of like glycolysis. And so you have a lot less oxidative stress, which is going to be get more mitochondria, more, more mitochondrial biogenesis, more aerobic, slow twitch and aerobic fast twitch muscle cells. Okay. For somebody who doesn't know what those terms are, I know what those terms are, but I can tell you, Peter, that people, when I use those words say, I don't understand what you're talking about. So can you put that in? uh, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So then we we can even put them in COVID terms. Um, Okay. Put them in COVID terms. (laughs) Okay. So mitochondria are the powerhouses, literally the the powerhouses of your cells. Over ATP a little bit, what that is. All energy is ATP. It's an electron transport chain and the principal driver is ATP, right? And ADP. And you, you get this electron transport chain of, so the electrons are providing the power and it's through this thing called the Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle, which happens in the mitochondria. So the, the mitochondria are your battery houses, your power houses. And the more you have, the more power you can produce, but you need more oxygen, nutrients, et cetera, to, to supply that power. But, but that's the beauty of, being able to burn fat because once you have that metabolic machinery ramped up and moving and you're tapping into your internal fat, not, not fat bombs, MCT oils, but your own internal fat, because that's what our bodies actually are made to do. You have this base load and then using ketones and glucose and even some external glucose and ketones because these are fast burning sugars and and ketones these for their first fast burning energy sources you can top it off for the performance end so the point is you want to have the more of these powerhouses you you have the better your cardiovascular system meaning your blood vessels your lungs all these things can supply the better you're going to perform the more robust you're going to be and the healthier you're going to be now you know, one of the hallmark presentations of, of COVID with people who aren't healthy, especially in terms of their cardiovascular system, is they feel like they're breathing through a straw because they're, they're undergoing a mild case of hypoxia. And, and people who get, you know, sent to the hospital and put on ventilators, you know, they're actually feeling like they're on top of Everest. Right, because they can't literally get enough oxygen. They can't get enough oxygen. And, and that's where, you know, as you were talking about the cytokine storm, that Ron Rosedale and Ivor, Ivor Cummings were talking about, that's part of it. But from a COVID standpoint, you want to have your body in a place where it's, your cells have lots of mitochondria and the delivery system, that cardiovascular system, your heart, your lungs, your blood vessels, those are in the best shape to deliver as much in and take as much out as they can. And that's what a fat-based physiology combined with aerobic conditioning does. Now, 
take it the next step once you establish that basic switch through diet and then build it with some aerobic base training to get up to two or three hours where you can go and not bonk. That's when you start to implement like HIIT training and tempo workouts, because that's where you're going to give that little added stress to actually grow that cardiovascular system to make more mitochondria, to, to pump more blood in and out. And, you know, this just happens as a part of training, but because we're all burning fat, you know, we're never not burning fat. Cause if you're burning, if you're not burning fat, you're essentially dead. But, but when you're burning a lot of carbs, you're limiting your fat burning. And, and that's the point. You want to get as much fat burning in play because it's, it's what we're meant to burn aerobically. It's the cleanest, most efficient, most sustainable way of delivering energy. And unless we have that machinery of that cardiovascular system built up, we're limiting at it. And, and, and to a point, as you know, there's a lot of play on keto and low carb, right? Right. But I right. think that there is, but then it gets. But the problem with that is that all the science, almost all of the science, almost all of the science is based on sedentary people. Right. Yeah. And then there are a lot of endurance athletes who, who have blood regulation, blood sugar regulation problems or, or had insulin resistance. Half of all endurance athletes developed some form of insulin resistance that they found keto and then they're like, wow, I'm doing great. I lost all this weight and everything. And then they want to be competitive. And then a lot of them are, well, there's, there's multiple camps because I, I moderate a Facebook group, keto for endurance athletes. Then they're so afraid of adding any carbohydrates that they're like a nut about it. And then they start shaming other people. I'm like, no, no, you cannot everybody's in a different place. You cannot tell people not to take in any carbs because regardless of how fat adapted you are, if you've trained your body to use carbohydrates properly and and time them properly, or what you call it is use them strategically, is you're always going to be faster. So can you explain that why adding in the carbohydrates and being able to use fat and carbohydrates for fuel will make you faster? Okay, well, there's several reasons. So it's really complex. But the first one is if you do deep keto, you downregulate your PDH, your pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme, because you're just burning fat all the time. So the body says, oh, I'm not needing as much of this enzyme to, to process, to cleave off the uh, glucose molecule and to pyruvate and lactate. And so we downregulate that. So when you do try to race, and you need your, your, you know, you're at that threshold and dipping into the anaerobic spectrum and you need sugar because it's a fast acting, um, energy source. You just don't have the PDH enzyme to help process it. Now, another well, one. Well, we're not going to say need because you never need sugar. You want to add sugar to go faster. Yeah. That has to do with sugar. So when you're, when you're trying right, to perform. But, right. I think that there's some confusion with people. People, because we have a lot of people who say, oh, I've done full marathons with no carbs. Well, that's completely doable. But at sometimes you want to have a PR, you're trying to qualify for Boston or you're trying to qualify for Kona where you want sugar. You could do any distance you wanted without adding any carbohydrates because you said need. 
it's not a need. You just desire to go faster. Well, I would context it's a need if you are trying to perform. It's right. a, you asked me about, about how we want to do this for okay, performance. Okay, so sorry. You, you need I just, carbs. Right. Yeah, you need if carbs. You if want you want to go faster, you're going to add in carbohydrates and then um, I'll let you finish explaining why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, you said basically I was thought you meant that, you know, for, for performance, you need carbs. There's just, there's just no way around it. Now, that being said, if you're well adapted and you're adapted for performance, your liver will make a significant amount of those sugar. Plus you have the release of glycogen. And what I was getting at is if you do deep keto and deep keto training where you're not pushing your, your threshold and your anaerobic, you'll downregulate that enzyme. And then when you need it for that push, you don't have it. So it's going to limit your glucose metabolism. Okay. The other reason is when you surge into those higher levels and oxygen demand becomes really high, then you have to make a little bit of a trade from fat to, to glucose because glucose doesn't require near the oxygen as fat to, to be metabolized through the Krebs cycle. But that's also one of the reasons why you want to get fat adapted and then build your cardio to its potential fat adapted because by doing so, you limit that trade-off to keep it as much fat as you can. Because if you don't, like if you, one of the problems with carbs is if you develop your cardio on a carb base, you're never going to develop it to the point where you have the robustness to be able to go to that next level using both fat and carbs. Right. So you're building a huge metabolic engine with fat, and then you're adding the nitrix oxide. With the That's right. But, but you're also building that capacity for the lungs and the circulatory system in the heart to get more oxygen in. You can't do that. You're limited when you do it on cars because of the inflammation and the fact that you're burning through it so the body doesn't need it. When you're using a fat physiology, you're giving it that adaptive stress that says, I need more oxygen because it takes more oxygen to burn fat. Okay. But by doing so, you don't create the oxidative stress. You also want to dip into that glycolytic thing to keep those pathways open. And those glycolytic pathways are going to give that adaptive stress to make the body stronger, both on fat and sugar. Okay. Let's do our go back to our little scenario with the, the accountant who started running. So he he was high carb, sedentary. So he first switches to keto, he starts, um, he adapts, starts running, loses the weight builds a giant base, and now he's ready to add intensity and carbs. So what would you tell him? Because you talk about strategic carbs. How would you advise someone to add in strategic carbs? Okay, so, you know, you do need to find your carb tolerance level, you know, how much concentrated forms of carbohydrates that you tolerate well to get the boost, but not the negative, right? And so the strategic way about it is it depends on your, you know, your training volume and level. And, and I like to see periodization. So once you've gone through the two or three weeks of that aerobic buildup, right, where you're just getting right. that volume. Or longer. Your, could be up to six weeks of aerobic buildup. But. Right, right. Once you get that aerobic buildup, then we're going to start to toss in one or two higher quality workouts a week with a warm up. 
Okay, the warm up is key for those warm workouts to where you're doing high intensity interval work and maybe tempo, and then always a long run on the weekends to keep to maintain that endurance base. And then around those higher and longer duration workouts, you know, before you want to bring in some carbs, like the night before, if you're running in the morning, have an eat, bring in a, con- a serving of concentrated carbs in the evening, sneak it in under a blanket of fat to blunt the glycemic spike you would get if you just had carbs, right? So and an then, example would be like a steak with a sweet potato with butter, right? Yep. 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 Yes. Yeah, a, a steak, some cooked vegetables with butter and a sweet potato, baked potato, or, or really rich risotto, like, you know, a really rich risotto. So anything that has a lot of fat in it to, to, to slow down that glycemic load. Okay. okay. I have a lot of athletes that, that, that tolerate carbs well, that I'll tell them to, if they enjoy sushi, I'll have them go have sushi before a marathon. But limit That works really stop. well. Yeah. I, 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 I have done that before, but don't go crazy with the wasabi. Just for yeah, per- yeah, <laughs> just yeah. from personal experience that's a bad idea <laughs> but <laughs> that. and then what i would do depending on the workout is have a smaller portion in that first meal post-workout a smaller portion of carbs like as a backload a lot of times if the volume's fairly high you know like if they're going to go out the next day and do a, a recovery workout that first meal should have a little bit of carbs in there as a backload if their tolerance is good. But you had talked a lot about like when you're cooling down traditional, I guess, contemporary advice is to have something within 30 minutes. And that's not necessarily what you want to do to maintain your insulin sensitivity. So talk a little bit about that. Okay. So what we recommend is when you're done with the workout, I think the key thing is to stabilize your hydration. And what I tell people is, you know, if you like, like V8 or spicy V8, something like that, and some water after or some, some electrolytes with not a lot of calories, because V8 has trivial calories. It's not going to spike you, but it'll get you stable and then see where you are. And electrolytes and fluids. It's huge in electrolytes, Right. right? So. Yeah. Yes, yeah, tasty. Yeah. So it's it's like trivial calories, a ton of electrolytes. It'll get you stable because a lot of times when people end a workout, especially if you're in a place like Arizona, it's really about the electrolytes and the dehydration than than the hunger. So you have a V8, you have a glass of cold water, see where you are, and then generally, I recommend that first meal be when you get around to eating is literally why it says go home, take a shower, get cleaned up. And then it's usually for most people, it tends to be an hour to three hours after they say, Oh, okay, it's time to eat. Right. It's when you get hungry, you don't have to force yourself to eat if you're not hungry. Absolutely right. not. Yeah. That whole um, idea. Let's, let's debunk that when you're fat adapted. And if you're a carb burner, you're forced to stick with that, that addict approach of, of shotgunning a bunch of carbs and, and a little bit of protein, you know, the four to one carb to protein shotgun approach immediately post-workout. And for those people, if you didn't miss it, Peter said for that addict, and he's referring, if you are dependent on sugar, you are a, an addict. And that's why I used it. Exactly. It's like, yeah. we're, we're not, we're not going to mince words here. You know, you, right. you're a junkie, you're a carb whore, you're, you're, it's, it's, <laughs> <Carb> it's, <laughs> I have not heard I that mean, one, Peter. Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. a, is that that's a is that a peterism or is that yeah, that's a, did you hear? A, it's a peterism <laughs> yeah. you know you'll do anything for you'll sell your body for carbs right yeah um, okay you know because you know how some people you know how some people right get. it's like I they're a jun- they are like a junkie like oh my god i gotta eat or else i'm gonna bonk like they're afraid of bonking during and they're gonna, afraid of bonking tear- after or hypoglycemia to- right yeah, or I'm going to rip somebody's head off or whatever. Right. I mean, you see it, okay? The hangry, yeah. The hangry, right? So if you're one of those, you got to eat that that window. But if you're fat adapted, you're probably not going to want to eat once you just get your electrolytes sorted, your hydration sorted, and then wait till you're ready to eat and then go ahead and eat. That's real key. And, and so that first meal, you can bring in some concentrated carbohydrates. Now, for the audience, let me give you a little real doable tip. Rather than weighing and, and calculating your macros, the way I like to do it and recommend it, it's real easy, is like you look like non-starchy vegetables and fruits you eat like vegetables like avocado, zucchini, yellow squash, things that don't have a lot of starch in them. They're not real carby. Those you can eat unlimited. So salads, blah, blah, blah. And then then your protein macro is going to be whole food protein sources you look at as food, you know, like whole eggs, whole red meat, chicken with the skin on it, duck, poultry, fish, seafood, okay? You can have that in the moderate necessary protein amounts, you know, like a serving type portion, you know? And then with both of those, you can have those as much of the non-starchy as, as vegetables you want because they will not impact your blood sugar. In a significant way. So then with both of those, the protein and the and the non-starchy veg stuff, you add as much fat as you need to make it taste good, whether it's a salad dressing or a condiment or ghee or something to cook it in or a sauce, like a marsala sauce or a bernay sauce. And that makes it really easy to do. You know, and, and then you're really kind of moderating your protein serving size based on the amount of fat that's in the protein, the amount of protein that's in that protein. Does that make sense, think, Steph? Yeah. I mean, I think for for people who are weight stable and you're a healthy athlete, you don't really have to think about it so much as if you eat real food and maybe focus on, I need to make sure I have protein to our satiety. Yep. I need to make sure I have extra fat and not overdo the carbohydrates. And then if you practice like one or two fasted training sessions a week and then do the warm-up and add the carbs after your warm-up, discontinue the carbs after you eat, like it's pretty simple to follow. Yeah. And, and but the reason I, I I say the non-starchy vegetables and, and fruity like vegetables, it's like but, we're hardwired to have an appetite. And and non-starchy vegetables, they're basically no calories, they fill you up. And right. because of the way your digestive system works, trivial amounts of glucose will transit from the gut to the bloodstream. Most of it goes to your colon and the bacteria actually convert it into fatty acids. Yeah. And then for the folks who are carnivore or eat all meat, Peter's the one who actually told me about the carnivore diet. Yeah. Vegetables are optional. Yeah. Unless you're in a carnivore circle, it's not politically correct correct to say right, 100% true. But Peter understands not having vegetables. So if you're a carnivore athlete, you don't ever have to eat vegetables. And I think mentally, it's freeing to know that you don't ever have to eat a salad if you don't want to have one. 
No, but a lot of people like salads or they, or they, they right, need to have fine, something in, but, the, in yeah. them to fill them up. But so that's why I say like, if you're, yeah. if you're, you know, more mainstream, you know, the, the non-starchy veg is a good way to kind of keep your satiety levels up. We were talking about before, uh, before we got started recording, satiety a lot of times is dictated by leptin and ghrelin. Yep. Insulin well, it's, it's not, a, not only a lot of time, it is. <laughs> satiety. It is. No, no. And if you have balanced leptin and ghrelin levels, you're not going to overeat, even if you add the starchy vegetables or not. Well, I would, let's just say it's not a disagreement. It's just that we're hardwired to eat because that's what, that's what got us off our butts to go hunt and gather. Well, I, yes, but I can tell you, cause I, like I was telling you, I started working with uh, Robert Sykes with Keto Savage to help try to figure out my body. because I've chronically under eight. And that's one of the reasons why I had chronic low hormones and chronic thyroid problems. And mm-hmm. He was like, we got to get your leptin and ghrelin working right. And we're going to have you basically overeat for a while. You will gain weight, but eventually those hormones will level out. And I have put a lot of faith in him. And, I, and actually, I, I was not believing it, but I'm like, I'm going to stick to this. And it's true. Before, when I was like forced myself not to eat, I wouldn't eat and I wouldn't be hungry. But then when, if I started to eat, then I couldn't stop. And if you think about evolutionary, that's, that's, that's pretty exactly smart. That the body does. That's, right. That's but exactly now, now I'm forcing myself to eat. And I, because I told my body that there's chronic abundance and because I'm eating, eating, eating. And now if I eat, if I'm hungry, I'll, I'll eat a little bit and then I'm not going to be hungry anymore. And that's because my leptin and ghrelin are better. And now I've, I've hit the high point and I'm starting to, my weight's dropping now and going down to the other side. But it took gaining a fair amount of weight before that all started to level out. So, I mean, I'm just saying for someone who's never been over 20 pounds overweight, they probably don't know what that's like. You know, my yeah. husband never knows. He never restricted his food ever. And he's very, very, very thin. He just, whenever he's hungry, he eats. When he's not hungry, he stops. For me, I would force myself not to eat. Or if someone was starving, they would do that, you know, in the environment. Then whenever I did eat, I just could not stop. Literally couldn't stop. I felt like I was possessed. So I think that if you have a properly functioning body, you'll have normal hunger signals. Yeah, I I think that, you know, we have an appetite for a reason and that's to get, that's what got us off our butts to hunt and gather. And so, you know, what you're saying is perfectly true, but it's like I say, you know, with females, you know, females are essentially designed to eat and safer too. So, you know, like leptin, females produce two to three times the leptin of a male, but yet they're the ones that get leptin resistant real easy. And, And that's part of that that evolutionary hardwiring just in play, but with the unintended consequences of a modern environment. Right. But I also think that our culturally, we have been told to starve ourselves because if we're fat, we are quote unquote, a gl- you know, a glutton and lazy. You're lazy and you have no discipline as opposed to 
we've told you to starve yourself and eat a low fat diet. And now you're hungry all the time and your body's trying to make you not hungry. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, like me as an athlete, and you know this, when you're an athlete and you're carrying, say, 10, 5, 10, 15 pounds of extra weight, you feel fat, right? And that's kind of where your body should be. But because your body always carry, you know, nature made us robust. We always carry a little extra. Now, in the sedentary world we live in today, most people are carrying way more than 10 or 15 pounds. Right. Yeah. But there are also a lot of overweight athletes out there. No, absolutely. I mean, but that's but they're that's, even 40 they or 50 pounds overweight. And that's because they have a broken system. Right, but they but they don't even know they don't even know how how it feels to be down to their correct race rate. Right. Right. But they don't even know even if they're trying to watch what they eat or not, they're driven by hunger because their hunger signals are messed up. Well, yeah, if yeah. You're overweight physio- and you're hungry. Your hunger, yeah. yeah. Well, but that's that's also the beauty of of evolution and the science. I mean, like when you're if you're forty or fifty pounds overweight and you're hungry, that's because your body's in distress and it, it's wanting to store more because it's it knows it's compromised. Right. 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 Because it thinks that there's a famine or there's some horrible thing going on. And it's trying to like. Or, not even a famine. It just thinks that the body's sick. So if a right. you know an animal is wounded or going into hibernation, it wants to get as fat as it can, literally, because it knows you know the nature knows it's not going to have the opportunity to to be an efficient hunter to go out and get it. Whereas when you're in peak shape and you're hunting and gathering, your body knows it needs to be as strong, fit, and light as it can, so it can hunt well. Right. So I don't think a lot of these people really realize it's like, like, you know, as you know, and you've had these experiences over the years with adaptation, you know, it's like people can't, they literally do not believe it can be that pleasant because we've been taught to feel like we have to be hungry just to get our weight down. We have to, you know, we have to bomb to do exercise. We have to puke. We have to be wrecked. And, and, you know, when you right. get people, well, and they even have YouTube videos, they've made videos about Iron Man, about how hard you push yourself to become an Iron Man and that you're tired all the time. And I saw yep. I was when I was a carb dependent athlete, yep. I was, I feel, and I used to tell my coach, I said, I don't understand how I train all the time and I'm not fit. And she's like, I, you are fit. You just did a half Iron Man and you did fine. But what I didn't know how to articulate was I don't feel healthy. I was expecting to exercise like this and be one thin and two feel healthy. Well, that's the disconnect. And that's what this conversation is all about is, is what people think is normal is not normal. Right. You know, and what we're doing is actually what evolution dictated for us, but you know, because it's not normal, we get a lot of skepticism. We get even criticism and downright flaming for it. I have a question, Peter, because I'm always like mentally, I mean, questioning. Do you think it's just, I guess you would say lazy thinking or, or, you know, people bought into what they were taught? Or do you think it's willful deceit by different organizations to push the carbohydrates? Do you think it's willful or just 
I guess not lazy thinking, just bought into the current paradigm. There's a little bit of laziness to it, but it's really more than that. It's a combination of first, I want to qualify this. It's good intentions. Everybody who's saying this, no matter how gently or rapidly they're knocking what we're doing, they intend well. They really do believe in this. But the other side of that is because this high carbohydrate paradigm of lots of working out on lots of carbs creates a a junkie, an addict sort of mentality. Uh, Right. So you have to use their products. Well, yes. But even if you're not selling a product, if you're a coach and you're trying to coach on this, this way, it compromises you to the point where there's a lot of fear. Okay. It's like a, what I call the wounded animal syndrome of vegans. I think vegans are very defensive because they're like a wounded animal because physiologically they're nutrition. Most of them are nutritionally deprived. You know, you get a, you get a carnivore and he had a big steak. It's like, yeah, so what? I don't care. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like somebody, some, some vegans telling him he's going to die of a heart attack and you need to be plant-based. You need to watch game changers. You got me off filter. The audience has me off filter now. And like the guy who's just had a steak, it's like, yeah, so what? He doesn't even, he doesn't even want to fight back because his body is satiated. It's got all the nutrition. It doesn't, you know, you're, you're in a happy place. You don't feel the need to be defensive or fight back because you're okay. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people in the carb, carb camp, because they have to have that up and down of carbs, it, it sets up some very interesting psychi- psychological brain synapses that are on sort of this this alert thing so when they hear about something that's foreign to them because we we tend to be xenophobic which which I use the word xenophobia to mean everything anything that's different that's okay. not like us right yeah that's not like us we're going to seek out and destroy because that's what happens in insect colonies is like you can have an ant of the same species go to another colony they kill them the, the other ants will kill them. Like same thing with the, the murder hornets, the hornets we get our Vespa peptide from. Right. If a hornet from one colony goes to another colony, they kill it. I was so, going to talk to you about that, but I totally spaced it until you said that. So the xenophobia is, is real. Right. I was going to say, you know, you had said, Peter, oh, you got me uh, off, uh, not off filter, PC. Un- unfiltered. Off filter. Yeah. It's not, I've known Peter for, a very long time. It is not hard to get Peter off filters. I don't yeah, think. Well, yeah. Especially so, maybe I know how to push your buttons to get you off filter, but I don't think yeah. it's a difficult thing. Well, you know what they say in Latin America, solos borrachos niños y locos dicen la verdad, which means only the drunks, children, and crazy men speak the truth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so back to what you were saying about the anti fat adaptation stuff. I think a lot of it has to do with people who are just, you know, it's like scorched earth, but it's really fear because there's a, phys- there's a physiological fear because they aren't, they aren't confident in where they are. You know, they have those ups and downs because you look at all these high carb athletes and literally they're just up and down all the time. Right. Well, I was like that and I had reactive hypoglycemia where every time I ate or when I exercised, I felt like I was going to slip into a coma which that's a really bad sign. And yeah. if, if anybody who's ever eaten carbohydrates and then like not even before you're done with the meal, you feel like you could just lay down and like fall asleep or you couldn't drive because you felt so disoriented, that's reactive hypoglycemia. And 
and you know Professor Paul Larson, who writes a lot of stuff with Dr. Maffetone, he had that. He was a very accomplished athlete, very thin, and had reactive hypoglycemia. So you don't have to be overweight. That's those endurance athletes who but, have insulin resistance. Yeah, he can be skinny. You're skinny fat. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's kind of where that comes from. And this is totally off filter and speculative, but you know, I really think there's something to that because when you're satiated, especially when your nutrition is right and your training is right, you just really have enough confidence on where you are to not have to argue with somebody about it. You don't feel like you have to jump out and bite somebody's head off. Because I've I've gotten flamed on Twitter, you know, because of my position on you know, fat adaptation uh, by a well-known coach. And so, uh, Well, know, I, I think we're, we must be talking about a different one, but there was a coach who totally bashed, well, more than one. There's few who bashed well, me. The, yeah, there's a lot of coaches out there because they just don't understand it, but they feel like they have to go out there and attack it. And that's, that's the point. It's like, it's okay not to understand. It's based, and it's okay to say, well, I wouldn't do that because that's not recommended, but you know, when you have to leap out and like be defensive because we're not going to war here. It's not like it's right. not like one tribe's attacking another, but that it's the same mental action and same mental physiology that's driving that as if you were attacking another tribe. Right. Well, and you know what? I also noticed that even in the keto sphere, that if something doesn't work, if your macros or your plan doesn't work for someone else, they blame it on the person trying them. So That's I right. I have tried all kinds of different macros. I've done every version of like keto, dirty keto, clean keto, you know, carnivore, lots of vegetable keto, whatever. But some of the the macros I've I've had different coaches too didn't work for me. And I was blamed for not doing it right instead of what they were recommending did not fit what I was doing. And I suspect it was my training volume, even though I told them my training volume, their food quantity was too low. And I had thyroid problems when I started with them. And then I had additional more thyroid problems after working with them. And then later when I started working with Robert Sykes, my thyroid problems resolved themselves. I don't have low thyroid anymore. So I think that it's don't blame the patient. Well, well that's it. And that's what one of the things we should talk about is like diet's important, but everybody just goes to the diet and the exercise. It's just like a default, right? right. And they're not looking at the underlying physiology, like like with thyroid, it's like like that's one of the biggest issues with with trying to perform on keto is people dig themselves these adrenal holes. I think it's not even adrenal hole. It's just I was not eating enough food because I have right. a higher training volume now. I get great sleep and I got great sleep then. I was not stressed out. I literally did not have enough food because yes, but, I had but, nothing but, but, different. But this coach was telling me that there are other issues aside from their macros they're recommending, that it was my sleep or my stress. I'm like, no, I have a good life. It's not my sleep. It's not my stress. And I stopped do following their macros. So I think that 
Your approach the point, is different, Peter, because you're yeah. not telling people specific macros. But that's my point is because you weren't eating enough, you were digging an adrenal hole. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing, just coming from a, a different approach. And it's like, right. And that's the thing. Like, you know, one of the biggest things is people dig adrenal holes because they're not bringing enough carbohydrates back when they want to perform. Right. right. That, and the fact that, that it's like some coach who is not used to working with endurance athletes is telling people, and they should limit this or limit that, or the protein sparing modified fast, which, you know, I'm sort of irritated myself that I use some of these macros with some of my clients too, because people wanted specific macros and it never worked for any of them. So I think that this idea of like, if you have, fat on your body, don't add fat to your food because you're trying to lose weight. So you still need to eat less whenever it's really the body's regulating its fat storage, not it, the hormone hormones that's are regulating a, fat storage. Not yeah. eventually if you get your hormones, right, your body will regulate itself. Exactly. That's why I say is that's when, when you dig adrenal hole, you know, it's, it's hormonal dysregulation and the body's wanting to store everything. It's wanting to kind of be conservative about feeding you to feed your performance. And then you get to do it. Well, and like, just like you said, once you started getting enough food, your body said, I've got plenty. I now can turn on the, turn up the engine. I can now release the fat. Right. But, but it's not just diet. You know, we have things like vitamin D levels, you have electrolytes imbalances, you have underlying conditions. And so my point is that you got to look at the whole person as an individual. And that's where coaching is really important, but coaching in a way that puts the focus on the individual. And, and unfortunately, modern culture or modern society and business, you know, talk, talking about businesses, we're trying to, we're trying to streamline. And I think there's ways to be efficient, but at the end of the day, we're all individuals and, and we have different variables. We have different genetics and, you know, it takes, both the athlete and the coach to work together with that person as an individual, ask a lot of questions. Cause you know me, I'll ask a lot of questions because I can't give any good answers if I don't have an idea of the, the variables. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's hard being an athlete and hard being a coach in this paradigm shift. I think, you know, you were talking about coaches fighting back and arguing back. Whenever you don't have that experience of how to fix something, you know, if you're a high carb athlete and it's always worked for you, and then you have a client who's, who is overweight and has metabolic syndrome, who should be on a low carbohydrate diet, but you cannot even relate to what would be best for them because you have no experience in that area. Like you don't, well, it doesn't work for you and you don't even believe in it. You just think that person's a lazy glutton and they can't control what they eat. Well, and that's right. And back to what you were saying about what's going on here. It's like, you know, the, the traditional ways people are doing things, what's considered normal, like you're supposed to starve yourself. You're supposed to be, be sore and wrecked. You're supposed to take a gel every 45 minutes. You know, that's what people consider normal. So it's a tough paradigm to work out of. But if people would educate themselves to the physiology and the metabolism, get that aha mode, because, you know, it's like when you're fasting, I tell people, you know, make sure you're having, there's some cheats you can use. You can do, you know, you can use Vespa, you can use some broth, you can use some VH juice to give you the trivial calories to keep 
suppress the hunger so you don't feel hungry because especially like you as a female, the moment you start like jonesing for food when you're doing a fast, you've already blown one of the main goals of the fast, right? Your body doesn't want to be saying, I'm hungry, I need food because the moment it starts knowing that, you know what I'm saying? it starts to store it's it's your physiology is already changed. I also think like if you're pretty metabolically broken, you shouldn't be doing, I mean, it's okay to do intermittent fasting or like, you know, have a condensed eating window, but I don't think people with the high volume of training or any metabolic derangement should be doing like anything longer than like a 20 hour fast. Oh, no, I agree. I completely agree with you. I'm just saying that, that, you know, like we were talking before that, that need that a carb athlete, a carb addict, you know, a junkie, you know, they got to eat every two to three hours. Right. You know, you need to be able, like on a recovery day, you need to be able to do like a female should do a 16 hour, 14 to 16 hour fast comfortably, comfortably. That's the point. Because if you're comfortably, right. They shouldn't occur to them to eat Mm -hmm. until they like, oh, I feel like eating. And now mm-hmm. um, I'm going to get something to eat. Right. So in that paradigm of normal, you know, people are starving themselves. So if somebody's like, you know, they're a two to three hour carb eater and all of a sudden they're trying to fast for 12 or 14 hours and the last six hours is just pure torture. Their physiology is already screwed up. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it wants, it wants to store, it wants to eat. And, and that's just, that's, that's just a very tough way to do it. Whereas when you get that physiology back to where it wants to burn its body fat for fuel, you know, like you say that, you know, these intermittent fasts are sustainable. Okay. So we, I don't want to go too long because then our podcast will be super long, but I know Peter and I could talk literally for hours and sometimes we have, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So talk about, so people always want to know what Vespa is and they really didn't know anything about the murder hornets until they were in the news. But now you can have the big reveal. What is Vespa and what does it have to do with murder hornets? Well, let's start with the, the term murder hornets. I mean, you got to laugh at media. This is, this shows how far outside things are with the loop because the media uses the term murder hornets, Right. Because we got COVID-19, we got fear. They love to use fear. And this is an underlying theme of this whole thing we're talking about is fear. We don't want, we fear change. We got to get over our fear and start to be a little bit brave and curious. So instead of using the marine, you know, they use murder hornets or giant hornets and all this stuff to sensationalize it, right? But that's a real uh, word for them. They're called the, aren't they called Vespa hornet or what are they called? They're called well. It's it's the Asian giant mandarin. hornet. Mandarin. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. The Asian mandarin hornet, and it's yeah. And I think there is in some circles in Asia, they use a term that's you know they're the killer hornets because they literally are the apex predator of the insect world in Asia. This is the hornet that we actually get the peptide for Vespa from because it's it's the world's largest hornet and it literally needs this peptide, which is which is a, a peptide that's given to it, fed to it by the larva in a symbiotic relationship called trophlaxis. Trophlaxis is an insect interaction between two life cycles of the species. So what happens is the larva feeds this peptide to the adult in exchange for food. So they both have an incentive to, to help each other. Help right. each other. And that's, that's the elegance of nature. They've developed this symbiotic relationship and literally, this occurs in ants, bees, termites, 
and hornets and wasps. Okay. And so it's very, it's, it's well studied. And, and when you look at these like ants, bees, termites, wasps, they're like the super endurance, super strength athletes of the insect world. Like this, this hornet will fly, you know, anywhere from 40 to a hundred kilometers a day in search of food. And it'll, it'll go out and kill, kill insects and even small ant rodents many times its size and, and then masticate it into a food ball and, and 30% and th- carry a, a food ball of 30% of its body weight back to the colony to feed to the larva. And so it's, it's like Japanese researchers were, were researching this back in the late eighties and early nineties. It's like, what does this wasp, how is this wasp capable of it? And so, you know, they, they came across this peptide and basically they, what they, what they hypothesized once they figured out the mechanism was, well, Animal cells are remarkably similar across species. You know, we're talking about mitochondria, right? The cytoplasm. Right. So animal cells are remarkably similar across species. Would this peptide exert an effect on, on other animals, including humans? And that's where they did some studies. And sure enough, they could, they could show pretty clearly that, that mice and rats swimming to exhaustion had longer swim times and durations. And then when they gave it to humans, it did the same. And it, it, it does so because this peptide allows the wasp to, wasp or a bee or a ant or a termite to tap into that fat store that it's in its thorax or the big big bulbous part in the back of an insect and so that's what it does and, and, and actually if this adult doesn't get a regular feeding of the peptide it actually can't it'll stop flying and die you know like if it goes out and somehow gets lost or confused and can't get it, any more peptide it's like done it's done. I mean, you know, so, but that's, that's the story behind it, but it, it's kind of like. So that's what like, Vespa is. It yep. is an extraction of that peptide from the larva. It's, and it's the real deal. It's, it, we get this from, from the larva in a proprietary process. And and for all you out there that are worried about the sustainability, actually, one of the reasons the murder hornets are over here is because there's a huge excess of them. So it's a public yes, service yeah. to extract the peptide from their larva. Right. Well, it's a public service to get to harvest these wasps and extract the peptide because there's too many of them. Be, because due to climate change and the European honeybee, there's way more wasps than there should be in the in the natural system. Sort of like people. Yeah. 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 We could have a whole nother long talk about that. <laughs> but yeah. The, yeah. So what Peter's company... The Vespa Power sells peptide with a little royal honey, and it's in a little packet, and you drink it. And or you can get the little condensed packs, which I actually like, but my husband likes the bigger packs. That and they will help that you'll get that amino acid peptide that the wasp is getting, and you won't have to worry about not being able to fly and dropping out of the air. Yeah, and and even for whether you're a fat adapted or a regular athlete, you'll get an effect, and you just won't need as much external calories. And one of the things is it'll drive the fat metabolism way up to where whether you're fat adapted or not, the soreness will just go away. I mean, your post exercise soreness is one of the big things people notice. Do you think, Peter? I I feel like though that the more fat adapted I am, the more I focus on eating more fat, the better the Vespa works for me personally. But I don't know if it, my husband, it doesn't really make, I don't know if it makes a difference or not. So do you notice that it it, works differently with different people? 
Yeah, it's all over the map. Now, there's some unpublished data out there done by a, a researcher I know that she tested a bunch of different athletes on different diets. And everything from a vegan plant-based diet to a, you know, an OFM type diet. And the range she saw was anywhere from half a gram to a full gram a minute increase in fat oxidation. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah. And the tendency was that the more aerobically fit somebody was, going back to our conversation earlier about aerobic fitness and capacity, the more aerobic fitness there was, the bigger the boost in fat oxidation. Oh, cool. And, yeah. So, All right, everybody, we've been talking for a long time. Peter, tell everybody where they can find you or find out more information about optimized fat metabolism, OFM. OFM.io and VespaPower.com. VespaPower is where you can get the products and OFM.io is where you can get some information and content. We're, we're still kind of in the beginning phase because as Stephanie knows, I'm good at what I do, but I'm lousy at the internet. <laughs> and I'm I'm, but I'm getting Peter's there. Peter's a self-confessed Luddite. I am. tech. Lud I'm a tech Luddite. Yeah. So, yep. I had to look that up for the first time you said that. But uh, when you look it up, you will see it's 100% true. <laughs> it is. It is. Stephanie, it's been great talking to you. Let's it's do this It's been so fun soon. talking to you, Peter. And we'll have to talk again yeah. sometime soon. And I will. I'll see you later. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like and subscribe to the show. If there's anyone you would like to hear from or any topics you would like to hear more about, please let us know in the comments.